Thanks so much, everyone, and thanks for welcoming me here in beautiful Rome, especially as an escape from the grim Midwest winter. It's been especially gratifying. So when Father Philip Neri first emailed me, inviting me to give this talk, he said, first of all, don't worry, you don't have to be an expert in Thomism. I was like, thank goodness, especially looking out at this room. And second of all, he said that I could be trusted to, quote, not pull any punches about barriers between talking across the boundaries between Thomist and analytic philosophers. So please consider this my not pulling any punches. Uh, here is the plan for my talk. I'm going to outline what I see as three forms of, of suspicion about Thomism from the perspective of analytic philosophy and myself in particular as an analytic philosopher. But this is not in service to not pulling any punches. I'm also going to give some advice to Thomists about counteracting each kind of suspicion, should they want to do that. Then I'm going to suggest that analytic philosophy is methodologically flexible. Um, more so than perhaps people might think, and that I think this approach supports engagement with Thomistic philosophers and some Thomistic philosophy more generally. So, three forms of suspicion about Thomism. I'll dive right in. The first form of suspicion of some of Thomism is clearly a kind of suspicion of some of the foundational tenets of Thomism. So to give the most obvious example, if one is skeptical of God's existence, one is not likely to be compelled by the entire Thomistic system, especially as a unified whole, including its metaphysics, epistemology, and especially its moral philosophy. And almost every aspect of Aquinas' system involves the existence of God. Yes, thank you. This is why they pay me the big bucks to tell you things like this. Um, I know that's obvious, uh, but you know, just like there are some philosophical systems of other varieties that have kind of deeply integrated tenets within them, you know, if you don't agree with that foundational tenet, or you just are questioning that tenet, or you just are not sure of the relevance of it for other philosophical issues, which I'll get into, you're bound to be skeptical of the entire system. But note that some Thomistic views, uh, for example, the principle of non-contradiction, um, the principle of causality, which I'll, I'll talk a bit about, are in principle, and I think in practice, separable from Aquinas' background theological commitments. So some philosophers might simply disagree with some of Aquinas' first-order philosophical views or the coherence of the Thomistic system. This is to say that I think we can separate out some of these things. So why don't I get into what that means a little. So one of my areas of specialty is causation, um, specifically the metaphysics of causation. I just ask, when is something a cause of something else? So, you know, if I'm flicking one domino and domino A causes domino B to fall, in virtue of what did A cause B to fall? Now, there are a plethora of answers to this question that span history. As a contemporary analytic metaphysician, um, my approach is to engage primarily with contemporary sorts of views. So I would say there are a few sorts of views on offer. Um, in answer to that question, one is what we might call a productive um, account of causation, according to which roughly something is a cause of something else when it kind of transfers an energy or an oomph to that thing. So, you know, this is what you might think of as your sort of like pre-theoretical or preschooler view of causation. You know, I, I whack over this water bottle. See, once I did this and it actually sprayed all over the audience, so now I'm a lot more careful when I do this in the example. Um, and I transferred energy to that thing. Another kind of answer is the so-called counterfactual theory of causation. The counterfactual theory of causation says that, roughly, something is a cause of something else if, had the first thing not happened, the second thing would not have happened. 
And this kind of thing can be found again and again in historical accounts and also in contemporary accounts of causation. It's also found in most systems of law. That is the kind of theory of causation on offer. So note that this is not obviously a question um, confined to analytic philosophers, um, nor are the answers confined to analytic philosophers. So for Aquinas, via Aristotle, causation is to be divided into material cause, formal cause, efficient cause, and final cause. But one thing I want to note is that Aquinas's slash Aristotle's divisions aren't necessarily incompatible with modern theories of causation, including counterfactual accounts of causation, like the kind I just mentioned. The regularity of the theory of causation roughly holds that something is a cause of something else when it's subsumed under physical or metaphysical laws about those things. So you can actually instantiate most of these types of theories of causation within the Thomistic or Aristotelian system. You can kind of do a mishmash of them. And in fact, I think a lot of contemporary theories do sort of incorporate these sorts of you know, concepts. The teleological concept of causation often plays a role in these debates. So you know, one thing we might just ask ourselves is, what's going on here that there's, there's already this theoretical divide, right? We're kind of asking the same questions, or so I think. And we're just giving pretty different kinds of answers. Another thing I want to flag is this is clearly not a unique methodological divide between, say, analytic metaphysics or you know, analytic philosophy more generally in Thomism. Even like philosophers of science and metaphysicians don't really listen to each other um, and don't really engage with each other. So to some extent, this is just an instance of a kind of sociological problem in philosophy rather than what I take to be a deep methodological divide. As Gloria Frost notes in a very cool book I've just read, Aquinas sees the causal relationship as ontological rather than conceptual or logical, but even that kind of very view is substantively engaged and engageable with contemporary views of what causation is and is not. That is, whether or not it's an ontological thing or merely a kind of like logical dependence relation. That's a question analytic philosophers ask all of the time. So one thing I want to push is that I think some of these differences can still be translated into differences in first order of views rather than deep incommensurable theoretical differences. So I think that suspicion of foundational Thomas tenets is in some sense the most surmountable since often it's a matter of first order philosophical disagreement. And for those of you who've taught philosophy in here, that's probably some of you. For those of you who taught theology in here, that's probably another portion of you. It's obvious that even disagreement about the existence of God can be construed as a first order philosophical disagreement. This is something we teach in intro philosophy all the time at the undergraduate level, right? We ask, what are the arguments for? What are the arguments against? So if we're construing that just as one kind of thesis among many in a big system, then we can challenge that like we can challenge anything else. Now I want to note in the spirit of bridge building that atheists obviously need support for their view too. So one way to work out the contours of atheism is to challenge the Thomistic framework. So I've give, kind of given a mishmash here, but the general message I want to give about that first form of suspicion of some of the foundational tenets of Thomism is that we can probably separate out some of these philosophical issues. We can treat them as first order philosophical disagreements about those issues, and then we can talk about them on a kind of individual basis. 
And in some sense, I see this as the most surmountable because philosophers love disagreeing with each other, right? And in fact, they pretty much love disagreeing with each other about methodology and second order issues as much as they love disagreeing with each other about first order issues. So I think if we're seeing this as a kind of disagreement about some theoretical foundations, including the existence of God, we're gonna have grounds for more engagement across the boundaries. And one reason I wanted to point to causation is one of these topics is even though this integrates some theistic aspects of the system, it's still something where we can substantively engage with each other. See, here I am like bridge building where I'm supposed to be not pulling any punches. So here's some advice for Thomas in reaching out to analytic philosophers. First, I would treat aspects of Aquinas' system as separable, at least in some philosophical contexts. So, you know, everyone's familiar probably with the Q&A forum where someone asks a question about a specific philosophical system, and then the person answers with some other aspect of the system. I'm not saying that's bad, uh, philosophically or methodologically, but in order to foster engagement, if one will just focus on one of the theoretical questions at hand, I think that would really help rather than saying one must understand the entire system in order to engage with it. Second, recognize topical points of contact and overlap between analytic philosophy and Thomism. So, you know, obviously, I think there's tons of topical overlap. As someone who works primarily in analytic metaphysics, you know, I work on things like causation, space, time, the nature of being, the nature of non-being, big lover of non-being. Right? Uh, I think there are special kinds of non-being, just like there are special kinds of being. These are fundamental questions that really span both methodologies. There's tons of topical contact. I definitely think it's worth recognizing that. And also be open to contributions of analytic philosophy and analytic philosophers as a helpful guide for Thomism, or at least, you know, kind of like helpful heuristic for where there might be some logical conceptual issues that need working out, is I'll get to at the end when I'm doing my next bridge building bit. I actually do think that analytic philosophy is a set of tools that can really be applied across the board. So one hint is just to see it that way in the context of trying to work out the Thomistic system. So a second form of mistrust is just possibly the methodology of Thomism. Now, as someone who does not work in this, I don't want to act like my caricature is the right view, but I'll just give a caricature nonetheless in case I think it's like theoretically useful. I'll call the crude Thomistic mythology the following, trust everything that, that Thomas Aquinas said. <laughs> like, let's just call it what it is. So as Pope Pius X put it, quote, the capital theses in the philosophy of St. Thomas are not to be placed in the category of opinions capable of being debated one way or another, but to be considered as the foundations upon which the whole science of natural and divine things is based. So, you know, that gets close to what I call crude Thomistic, you know, methodology, basically like everything this bro said was true, dash-ism. Like you can see why some analytic philosophers would grate a bit at that kind of methodology. Um, so the Catholic Church as a whole might not take this stance, but I do think some Thomists come close to this stance. And, you know, I think that can be difficult to engage with. Now, note that I don't think analytic philosophers are immune from this tendency. So like, 
you know, David Lewis is in my philosophical ancestry. Um, my supervisor's supervisor was David Lewis, and some Lewisians can treat David Lewis like some Thomas um, treat Aquinas. Um, you know, I think sometimes the same is true with Kantians. I'm just like talking trash up here now about a variety of subfields. But I just want to say that, like, I don't think this tendency is actually unique to Thomas, right? I mean, there is a kind of person-ism methodology that, that spans various corners of philosophy, including analytic philosophy. And I think on all sides, that can have the effect of shutting down exchange, um, you know, when the methodology is just trust everything the person says or because he or she said so methodology. So a less crude Thomistic methodology um, is to use Thomism as just a starting point for philosophical investigation, whether or not every piece of it is correct. So we can treat it like, you know, some of those graduate seminars you might have taken in your philosophical and theological education where, you know, we don't say everything this person said was true, but we're like, let's really try to figure this out. Let's work out what the problems are in the system as well as the benefits of the system. And then we can go from there. And I think that's something a lot of analytic philosophers would get on board with. Like everyone loves working out a good system, right? Everyone likes finding the problems with it at least I think in analytic philosophy. And so that would be a good way to foster engagement. I think the less crude Thomistic methodology I describe on the handout um, has a sort of attitude that's just less foreign to analytic philosophers. Um, but note that, as I'm sure you've noticed, some might still wonder why the Thomistic methodology is worth acceptance and engagement. So, you know, while trying to be respectful of it, some analytic philosophers might just be like, why listen to this dude over all of the other dudes? right, or all of the other people, I should say. You know, like, to some analytic philosophers, this is just going to be one person. And so, you know, one kind of, you know, key piece of advice I have is offer why it might be engaging with this one person over all of the other people in terms that analytic philosophers themselves might be sensitive to. So it can't just be like sunk cost fallacy, like, well, I've been sitting in Rome for a while, and like, I thought it'd be kind of cool to study, and like, now I live here forever doing this, right? I mean, you might want to offer some like philosophical, epistemic, theological reasons why you think this person over the others is really the one worth dedicating all of this study to. And again, I note that analytic philosophers have this problem too, right? Um, I think People who work on the philosophy of David Lewis should offer, you know, reasons for why we should work on David Lewis more than others. People who work on Kant should, you know, offer reasons for that. Okay, so some advice for Thomas reaching out to analytic philosophers. First, I would say act as if disagreement about particular philosophical topics is a matter of scholarly disagreement rather than just like automatically incorrect. Um, you know, so when you're challenging each other on things, you know, it's helpful to see yourself as an advocate for certain kinds of ideas rather than an advocate for a particular person or an entire system. And I th think one way to do that is to see aspects of these systems as not only separable, but also just see it as a matter of scholarly disagreement for the sake of a particular argumentative context. So in analytic philosophy, we have, you know, this phrase, in the philosophy room or in the ontology room or in the philosophy of math room where we're kind of like specifying a special context within which we can debate things, it might be helpful to do that as well in these sorts of contexts. Say like, well, you know, here in the bridge building room, um, we can argue about some of these things in a particular way. Another piece of advice I have 
is to be explicit about the role of Thomistic methodology in one's theorizing. And I'll get into this a bit next, but you know, I think there tends to be like a basic, almost emotional suspicion on the part of analytic philosophers towards Thomas, um, because we tend to think there's so much methodology buried in there, kind of that's implicit and deep, that not only can we not really engage with, we think, but that we also don't know, right? You know, so this is another aspect of bridge building in the sense that, you know, if you're open about exactly which things you're taking for granted, it kind of puts more of an evil, I shouldn't say you. It puts it puts more of an even playing field, you know, um, on the ground so that everyone can play on it. If all you're doing is kind of picking things out of the system or picking out certain facts um, or something like that, it will feel like we can't play too. And analytic philosophers love to play, right? Like that's what we do for a living, a meager living, but still a living. And so, you know, I think it's worth trying to kind of build bridges by being explicit about the things that you're taking on board automatically. Okay, third form of mistrust is, to be frank, mistrust of some of the practitioners of Thomism. <laughs> so very simply put, sometimes suspicion is about the possible background worldviews of the practitioners themselves. Um, it's no secret that we're living in an age with deep political, social, religious polarization, right? There are a lot of philosophers studying polarization right now, but one aspect of polarization is an automatic assumption that the people on the so-called other side can't even really be engaged with, reasoned with, disagreed with, that there's like no kind of epistemic commonality whatsoever. Um, I do think that this afflicts both sides, uh, to be honest, but you know, if we're looking for a kind of like sociological reason that perhaps analytic philosophers and Thomists don't engage with each other, I actually do think this is a major one. So, you know, as a liberal feminist analytic philosopher, I sometimes worry that the different social, political, religious worldview furnished by Thomism just makes engagement with some Thomists, hashtag not all Thomists, um, too painful. And I do recognize that this can run in both directions. So it can be difficult and painful to engage with someone who, for example, genuinely believes that women are defective and misbegotten, um, even if all we're doing is arguing about time travel or causation or what exactly a podium is or whether a taco is a sandwich. You know, there can be this kind of like flashing red light in my head about whether this other person on the other side um, actually thinks those things about women, for example. Um, I'm not saying that's a good thing. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a thing that actually supports engagement across the boundaries. But in fact, I think it is a barrier to talking across the boundaries between Thomas and analytic philosophers. And in theory, this shouldn't infect, affect engagement. But in fact, I think in reality, it does a lot. There's a kind of knee-jerk reaction. And again, I want to note that I realize this does go in both directions, right? So just as like I have the kind of flashing red light about what other people might be thinking, I am sure that they have the flashing red light about what I might be thinking, right? And I think this can be a difficult thing to overcome. And so, you know, what can be done about this? Um, I'll talk about that, that a bit. But another kind of sociological problem is that I think some professional academic philosophers just have trouble engaging with people with very different lives than their own, <laughs> for example. Um, but you know, it's not just the people in this room. I mean, obviously some academic philosophers have trouble engaging with people of different socioeconomic status, um, different geographical status, different cultural status. 
um, people of different political backgrounds, right? You know, it's no secret that academia is a kind of weird closed cultural world with its own little like norms and language and things like that. I'm a big fan of reading academic satires, which really bring this to the fore. Um, but, you know, we too can have a lot of trouble engaging with people who are different than us. So this is something to remember kind of if we're trying to talk across the bounds from both sides. Some philosophers might worry that they just won't be taken seriously by Thomas if they don't share basic Thomistic commitments. Um, you know, so this goes back to some of the stuff I said about challenging foundational tenets, but also treating some of the aspects of the Thomistic system as separable. Like, let's suppose that I want to debate with one of you fine people whether or not something is the cause of something else. So here's a fun example. Suppose that I place a bomb under Janie's desk and she diffuses it, thus causing her survival. Now, some metaphysicians think that if causation is transitive, that is, if the principle that if A causes B and B causes C and A causes C is true, then my putting the bomb under the desk causes her survival. That's not great, right? So let's suppose that, like, I want to debate that with one of you. I want to be like, you know, is this really true about causation? It's transitive. Do we really have to accept the truth of that example? I mean, how would we go about debating it? Um, you know, I think a fear of analytic philosophers and perhaps of an analytic metaphysician might be something like, well, they're just going to pull out something weird in the Thomistic system I don't know about. Like, I know about counterfactuals and other sorts of techie things. How are we actually going to speak the same language? And so, again, I recognize this is a problem that runs in both directions, but from the analytic philosophical perspective, I think it would help to try to speak the same language um, even if that involves letting go of some of the terms and aspects of the system temporarily in the bridge building room. Okay, so what can be done? This is, I think, I should say, the most tricky aspect of talking across the bounds. I don't think it's the first order of philosophical disagreement. I don't think it's a methodological disagreement. I actually just think it's primarily sociological and a lot can actually be done to bridge that, but it's difficult. So, the first thing that I think can be done is to clarify that one might not believe every single thing that Aquinas says on every single topic, if that is true of the particular person, right? Now, I don't mean you have to like walk around with like a bumper sticker or like, you know, like a pin. I do not believe every single thing like that kind of contributes to polarization too. But I think it might, it might, it might help, you know, to talk about, as I said, the aspects of the system is separable and say, well, I think Aquinas is really good on some of these things and maybe not so good on some of these other things philosophically. You know, one might just breathe a sigh of relief when one is trying to debate the other side. Um, another very simple thing I think could be done is to cite women's philosophical and theological work and to engage with it. Um, I can't tell you how much relief I see in any paper, actually, when I look down the citation list and frankly see at least one woman cited. Um, <laughs> you'll be surprised how rare this is, even in analytic philosophy, but it really would mean a lot and people tend to look. Um, and there are a lot of great, I think actually analytic Thomists working in this area too, who happen to be women. And I actually think just that very act would really help um, bridge the boundaries and help us talk across these barriers. Um, okay, so I think those are sort of like three forms of mistrust, the kind of you know mistrust of the foundational tenets mistrust of the methodology, and then broadly speaking, a kind of like 
social or sociological mistrust, you know, probably just owing to kind of like contingent factors having to do with how weak us humans are <laughs> and how difficult it can be to overcome those boundaries. Now we'll talk a bit about analytic philosophy as kind of methodologi methodologically flexible in the ways I think it can be bridge building. So as Mac also talked about, I think analytic philosophy is characterized by a certain sort of logical and conceptual rigor. I don't necessarily think it's defined by its topic at all. Um, as I said, I think analytic philosophers and Thomas both ask about the nature of causation, but they also ask about the nature of being, they ask about the nature of time, they ask about the nature of objects, right? These are all like very similar topics and questions. It's not basically the same question, just with some different approaches. Um, analytic philosophers, Thomas and continental philosophers all ask about the nature of the mind, for example. So why bring in continental philosophy to this talk? Well, I think continental philosophy is actually also a really interesting case study um, in trying to talk across divides, right? So there's also a pretty deep, like, methodological, but also kind of like sociological divide in philosophy between analytic philosophers and continental philosophers. So analytic philosophers, you know, really think they're doing their own thing and asking about their own topics with their own forms of doing it. But in fact, I think all of these people are asking very similar sorts of questions on very similar sorts of topics. So my suggestion is that I think that analytic philosophy is methodologically flexible. A very strong way of putting that is you could even see it as kind of methodologically neutral, right? Um, this gets a bit into what Mac talked about, about the role of logic in analytic philosophy. But there's a way of seeing it that is just a conceptual toolbox. So I know as a metaphysician, you know, I like to see it as I have this box of Tinker Toys, used to love those, right? And what I'm trying to do is put them together in such a way that it's going to model some aspect of the world, whether that's a descriptive aspect of the world or it's a normative aspect of the world. I've just got these tools and all I'm trying to do is, is illuminate the way the world is. I think viewed in a certain way that is methodologically neutral. Um, and also viewed in that way, it doesn't make analytic philosophy intrinsically stand in opposition to Thomism, right? So analytic philosophy is a tradition that doesn't suppose much in the way of philosophical conclusions. So what we're trying to do is uncover methodological differences between analytic philosophers and Thomas. I suppose, you know, you might describe one of the main differences is Thomas, broadly speaking, start with kind of conclusions and then try to kind of look at why we have those conclusions from there. Whereas I think at least the ideal form of analytic philosopher in some sense is one that starts with the tools and look at what looks at what they build. But in another way, analytic philosophy can be used to model Thomism as well. Um, and in fact, I think analytic philosophy is essentially unlimited in what its topic is. So right now, people are applying analytic philosophy to topics as disparate as the metaphysics of gender and race, which is a really hot topic, but also questions like, what is a sports team? And what are the persistence conditions of the sports team? Um, what is a video game? Totally awesome topic right now, and like gamification in games, like what are games, what characterizes a game, what realizes a game, metaphysically speaking. Artif artificial intelligence, also really hot right now in analytic philosophy, and even astrobiology, right? So one of the reasons I first fell in love with analytic philosophy is this is so cool, because if I get bored with like one thing, which I tend to a lot, I can just start applying these tools to a totally different thing. Um, so here's one example. 
Um, in the pandemic, I really, really, really miss restaurants, especially like really fussy, weird ones with high concepts. And so I wrote this paper called, Can Unmodified Food Be Culinary Art? So, you know, let's suppose you're like sitting in a really fussy restaurant and they serve you a perfect peach for dessert after this long, expensive meal. You know, this got me thinking, yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which it's art, there's a sense in which it's not art. So I take this as a case study of applying analytic philosophy to something you might think it's not applicable to. But in fact, to me, it's just always been natural to like look at the entire world through the lens of logical and conceptual analysis. Like it's just a set of tools for modeling in some sense. It's not necessarily backed by a particular ideology or you know, at least not doing it in a particular way. So I think there can be, this is controversial, I think there can be analytic continental philosophy. So uh, just as I think there can be analytic Thomism. For example, I think we can give an analytic analysis of the life world or Lebensfeld. Um, I think we can give analytic analyses of a lot of key continental concepts, including in Hegel, Foucault, Kassir, all the kind of ones you might have read about on Wikipedia in the middle of the night and been scared to delve into. I think we can give analytic concepts of those. Um, I also think we can give analytic interpretations of Aquinas on causation and a bunch of other topics. And I think that those things can actually go hand in hand. Um, I also want to note, this comes out of an exchange with Gloria Frost, many of Aquinas' own methods are analytic in nature, right? Um, at least in the sense that I'm talking about. They use logic, they use inference, um, they use arguments, um, hashtag not all, but you know, some. And so I don't think we should see these as opposed to each other. And of course, there already is like a rich tradition of analytic Thomas tradition, like, like Haldane and Gloria Frost and others have been working in this for a while. So I don't want to act like I'm inventing um, the concept. But that is to say, people are already picking up on the idea that you can use these analytic concepts and apply them to the Thomas tradition. Um, note that Pope John Paul II had a friendly attitude towards metaphysics and other non-Thomistic philosophy in general. He said, the importance of metaphysics becomes still more evident if we consider current developments in hermeneutics and the analysis of language. The results of such studies can be very helpful for the understanding of faith, since they bring to light the structure of our thought and speech and the meaning which language bears. Aw. So, you know, <laughs> that was sweet. <laughs> um, but, you know, we don't need to see Thomism just as this kind of like isolated system. We can see it as having these tendrils to other methodologies and other sorts of philosophy. Now, what about the other direction? I do think that Thomism can contribute to mainstream analytic philosophy as well. So, you know, as I mentioned, on some topics, Thomists already share much common ground with analytic philosophers. So for example, commitment to realism about the external world, a substantive notion of being, a plurality of sense perceptions. I actually think some of the causation stuff, like, you know, a lot of us were nodding in here, like, there's so much already common topical ground that there's no need to see these things in opposition to each other. So I do think that analytic philosophers can engage in fruitful dialogue with those on other sides of various methodological and topical divides. And I think that's especially the case if you kind of talk across the boundaries in the way that I've described in each of the three sections owing to the different kinds of suspicion. Thank you.